Welcome back to Homer's Odyssey. We're going to quickly review book four, and then we're going to get more into depth in it today. So today will be a lecture on Homer's Odyssey, book four. And in particular, we're going to focus on two stories that we're going to be told. A story by Helen, where she's going to talk about the infiltration of Odysseus into Troy and tell us some details that are a bit sordid in nature. In fact, he will be very vulnerable in front of her in a very Adam and Eve sort of uh, conjugal way. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then we'll talk a little bit about a very, very strange um, uh, capture the flag sort of game that Menelaus engages in. Menelaus will be given the task to capture a god. And apparently capturing a god or grasping a god is a very slippery endeavor, a very difficult thing to do. So very quickly, let's recall. Telemachus, son of Odysseus, is on a journey. He's on a journey to do what? To find out information about whom? Yes? His father, Odysseus. First, he went to a place called Pylos. Who was the king of Pylos, who did not have any information for him? Yes? Nestor. Nestor. And what was the name of Nestor's son, whom he sent with Telemachus to be his companion? Does anybody recall this? Two, one. His name was Pesistratos. We then went on to which land ruled by Menelaus? What was... There are two names for this. I'd take either of them. Yes? Sparta's one. What's the other one? Anybody remember? It's Shining. Shining Lacedaemon. Recall. Recall. And that, what is it that Menelaus is hosting two of for the upcoming two versions of this that are going to happen with his two children? Yes? Weddings. Two wedding feasts. Two feasts before the weddings. Very good. Recall that his son, Megapenthes, is being married to somebody called Elector's daughter. We don't even get her name. He will be the next ruler of Sparta, though he is not the, the legitimate son of uh, Menelaus because he is not the son of Helen. His daughter, Hermione, is also being married to Neoptolemus. Very good. So, Telemachus gets there. He is seated with Pesistratus. He's offered hospitality by Menelaus after this idioneous guy asks um, Menelaus a sort of a, a crude question. Should we even seat these people? Menelaus flies off the handle and says, absolutely, we should seat them. That is the Xenia. That is hospitality. We have received hospitality from so many people, which is true. He spent several years in Egypt. We're going to give it to somebody else. So, recall, we sat down and Helen descended with her attendant ladies, the most beautiful woman ever to have existed. And though Menelaus had noticed the hands, feet, and glances of Telemachus and suspected that perhaps he was Odysseus's son, it is in fact Helen who first identifies Telemachus as Odysseus's son because, well, A, Helen is very sharp. She's very perceptive. We know this from book three in the Iliad when she is so perceptive that she can perceive who, though she is disguised in front of her, yes? Aphrodite, a goddess, she seems to be the only mortal that without help from the gods can see the gods. We do recall that one mortal could see gods when he was given the help to do so in book five of the Iliad. Who recalls who this was? Yes. It was Diomedes. Very good. Very good. Um, that said, there may be another reason why Telemachus, or why Helen can tell that Telemachus is the son of Odysseus. Because Telemachus does look a lot like his father, but in order for Helen to know that Telemachus looks a lot like his father, who must she, who mu, whose looks must she know very well and be able to recognize? Ah, and the question that pops into all of our heads is, when did she 
have so much time to be looking at Odysseus, to come to know what he looks like. Now we recall, in book three of the Iliad, she didn't know what Odysseus looked like. And uh, he is identified as looking like a, who recalls the simile? He looks like a what amongst what? I'd be very impressed if somebody remembered this, yes? A ram among sheep. A ram among sheep, excellent. Very good, very good. He's the one that orders the ranks and sets the boundaries, that's right. But there is another story, and Helen, I just want you to know how awkward this story is. What do we all know that Helen did to Menelaus? Only that she left him. So she cheated on him. She left him to cheat on him. Not only with Paris, but also with Deiphobos, his brother, after Paris died. So we know that she has cheated on him. So there's a little bit of that left in their relationship. Now, this is the story Helen tells in front of Menelaus to Odysseus's son. Let's look at it right here. Ooh, oh, oh. And remember also that uh, she and Pisistratos and Menelaus, they're all crying for the people they've lost. Menelaus for Agamemnon and all his friends who have died. Uh, Telemachus for his father who is either alive or dead, but he's gone. He doesn't know. Pisistratos for his brother Antilochus. And recall that Helen then put this drug called Nepenthe, which we think was an opiate, into the wine, which supposedly, if your father or brother had died in front of you that day, you would not shed a tear. So it's a very, very, very strong narcotic. In fact, that will not be the only mention of narcotics in this book. And there will be, I, I would say, three or four very strong arguments against taking drugs in the Odyssey. We will see that argument uh, potentially here um, about dulling the pain. We will see that argument certainly amongst the lotus eaters. We'll talk about them during Odysseus's journey. We'll see sort of the ill effects of drinking wine to excess with a giant or a cyclops called Polyphemus. We'll also see what it's like when all you do is eat and drink and not give sacrifice to the gods with the suitors. This book is very much about understanding moderation and acting correctly within the laws and rules which people know. Hmm. Okay. So, here's the story that Helen tells. Near the end of the Trojan War, and this is during the time after the Iliad, after Achilleus had died, we recall from what we read between the Iliad and the Odyssey that the Achaeans had to come up with a strategy to defeat the Trojans that did not have anything to do with physical force. The Trojans obviously had this super wall made by Poseidon that keeps anybody from getting over it, and Apollo guards it all the time. And so attacking Troy by force, especially without the help of Achilleus and Aias the Greater, not going to work, or will take much too long. These people are going to die before they finish. So Odysseus is chosen to disfigure himself and to get into Troy. Why does he need to get into Troy? In Troy... There is a statue of Athena called the Palladium, or Pallas Athena. The idea, or the prophecy that Helenos tells the Achaeans is that so long as the Palladium remains in Troy, Troy cannot fall. And you might say, Mr. Schmidt, I, I think I see symbolically what that means. If the image of Athena, the statue, is a symbol for wisdom, and the symbol for wisdom is stolen from Troy, what is it that leads to the loss of the Trojans? Lack of wisdom, precisely. Very good, Janice. Excellent, excellent, excellent thought. And so, Odysseus gets in. Who spots him? Helen. Bad situation for Odysseus. 
We don't get any more information about this. But apparently, he talks his way out of it, even though she directly accuses him of being Odysseus. It's like, no, no, I'm just a beggar. And somehow, he convinces her to take him into private and for her to give him a bath. And now we pause at this. And we all sort of smile. We all just think for a second. There's just a couple things about taking a bath. We will see multiple baths that Odysseus takes during the Odyssey. In fact, he will meet a young lady named Nausicaa, and she'll say, hey, let, me ser let my serving women bathe you. And he'll say, no, that's very embarrassing. I'm not going to let that happen. We'll see him get to Ithaca. And in fact, his nursemaid, his former nursemaid, Eurycleia, will be giving him a bath. Whether she recognizes him or not, we'll see. So we'll see that Odysseus puts himself in moments of vulnerability with people. And so, well, I just want to add one additional element to this. Helen is talking about giving Odysseus a bath. Obviously, he is unclothed in front of her husband, whom she has cheated on, who had an entire war to get her back. Can you imagine just how awkward that conversation would be? Uh, add to this that she is telling this story to the man who she claimed to give a bath to's son. <laughs> I just want you to really revel in that for a moment because that is how awkward this conversation is. Yes? So far as we know, he did not take a concubine in Troy. So yeah, pretty rough, pretty rough stuff. It would be much easier, I think, to our modern sensibilities if he had like 17 concubines hanging out with him in Troy. We'd be like, well, you know, we don't mind that as much. But Menelaus seems to be a pretty stand-up person. Though that said, I, I would like to look up whether he did have a concubine. He would have been of the rank that he could have. And well, during this bath, Odysseus cuts a deal with Helen. Do not out me and get me killed and when I steal the Palladium with Diomedes, and let the and eventually we Achaeans come in here, which will be soon, and sack Troy, you will not die. Helen is smart. She knows that the Trojans can't stand against the Achaeans. She agrees to this plan. But Helen is also very weird. Because even though she agrees to this, this is just a very weird part. When the Trojan horse is brought before the gates of Troy. Paris is now dead. Deiphobos is the husband of Helen. Helen is brought out in front of the horse. And perhaps you can understand symbolically what this means. I don't think I'm quite there, so I'll need seminar for you. All the champions of the Achaeans are in this horse. Neoptolemus, son of Achilleus, Odysseus, Menelaus. Also a man named Anticlos. Helen has a very strange ability. Apparently what she can do is she can yell out in the voice of any woman. It's as if she is every woman in some way. And so what she does when the Trojan horse is brought out is magically she has some understanding of the men who are inside. And she yells out to the horse in the voice of each and every one of their wives. Come out. Come out, I'm a prisoner here. Come out, Anticlos. Come out, Neoptolemus. Come out, Odysseus. Who is the only person that knows that this is a trick? Of course, Odysseus. Anticlos is young. He thinks, my wife, she's out there. I've got to go help her. Odysseus covers his mouth, 
Muzzles him, calls him a fool. You fool, you get us all killed. This is a trick. So I just want you to mention that because, again, who, which side is Helen on exactly? Is she on the Achaean side? Is she on the Trojan side? She does seem to be on both sides. I would say that is a good way to look at her. It is, that is precisely why we have so much trouble with her. Where is her loyalty? And in fact, if I just tell you sort of what her name is throughout time, she's born Helen of Argos. She then becomes Helen of Sparta. She then becomes Helen of Troy. She then becomes Helen of Sparta again. And in fact, there are multiple books about Helen. There are many books written about Helen, by the way. Uh, but there is one called Helen of Troy and one called Helen of Sparta. I've seen them at a bookstore right next to each other before. I thought that was very interesting. And so, the only reason I tell you that story, and this is not the reason I usually tell you stories, is sort of to confuse you. Because is Helen very confusing? Thus, thus woman in the Odyssey. So says Homer. As mysterious as the waves. As mysterious as the waves. She will be contrasted very much with Penelope. And so I will say this. Helen is not the only feminine figure we get in the Odyssey. We also, of course, get Athena. We also, of course, get Eurycleia. We also, of course, get Penelope. If we are going to identify what the ancient ideas about femininity were, or Homer's ideas are, we're going to have to understand each of these ladies together. And perhaps, and we will see this borne out in the Underworld Book 11 by Agamemnon, perhaps we will see that just in any human life, just with any gender, there are two paths at least that one can take. Penelope will be held up as sort of a faithful, good, and loyal person. Helen will be seen as sort of the opposite. And so, while well, we can decide whether we agree with that during seminar. All right, next story. Telemachus explains to, in the interim, to Menelaus, that the reason that he's here is that there are these suitors at his home and he needs information about Odysseus, because if he gets information about Odysseus, and find Odysseus, bring Odysseus home, and then what will the suitors do in his reasoning? Leave. leave. And that would be great. That would be a perfect solution, because then he gets his dad back, the suitors leave, and there's no violence. Perfect. That would be great. And so we ask Menelaus, what do you know about my father? And Menelaus says, I know that your father will return and will kill these suitors, and Telemachus says, how? Well, Menelaus says, I have to tell you a little bit of a story. You know that I spent some time in Egypt, and you know that it took me time to get home, and during that time, some strange things happened. And I want you to note that this will be the first story I tell you about truly strange and magical things happening, and that this will be a constant theme from Odysseus's journey when he describes his own journey home. Menelaus recounts. He was trapped on Pharos, an island off the coast of Egypt, for 20 days. Eventually, starving, and this will be a theme that Odysseus goes through multiple times, starving and being trapped in places during the course of the Odyssey. You might say that both of those are a theme. What you do when you are starving, can you stick to your mission and keep from eating something poisonous or, uh, or, or forbidden by the gods? And can, and can you endure when you are trapped and get out of it? That will be one of his first, uh, that will be one of his first tasks. In any case, Menelaus was trapped for 20 days on Pharos off the course 
uh, or off the coast of Egypt. A goddess who is the daughter of the old man of the sea called Proteus, called Adothia, pops out from the water and decides to give Menelaus a little bit of information. And now what is it that she tells him? She says, well, listen, Menelaus, I've seen you and your men and I've taken pity on you. If you ever want to get off this island where you are trapped by winds, you must catch my father, Proteus, who, if you catch him, is required by oath to tell you the truth of how to get home. So Menelaus is very interested in this. And so she gives him some very odd instructions. She says, well, he comes, he comes out of the sea at this time every day, and he counts his seals. He's a collector, apparently. And so what you need to do is kill three of these seals, and you and two of your men need to get under their skin. And so when he comes by to count you, what do you need to do? You need to jump out from under the seal skin and grab him. And then he's going to transform into this and this and this and this and several things. It'll be a snake, a leopard, I think a lion at some point, a flame, a tree, and some water. I think that's what he turns into. How do you hold on to water? Exactly. Exactly. Good question. How do you hold on to water? How do you hold on to a god? I think that's what this is supposed to be. He's supposed to represent all things, or the divinity in all things, and that you can see thus divinity in what? All things from which you can derive information. Hmm. In any case, Menelaus must disguise himself as a seal and then catch the old man and not let go no matter what he turns into. And then the old man will tell Menelaus how to get home. So, even though the seals smell absolutely awful, in fact, Menelaus and his men are described as retching the seal smell so bad. And we all know from living near La Jolla, seals do not smell good. I mean, they are mammals like us who live in the salt water. You go spend about eight hours of the day in some salt water and then never bathe your entire life. See how you smell. Actually, I don't recommend that, though you could try. Yes? Almost stepped on one. Almost stepped on a seal. Wow. Your shoe would never be the same. In any case. All right. So, Menelaus is now hiding underneath the seal skin. He jumps out to grab Proteus as he comes out to count his seals. Proteus transforms, as I said, into a lion, leopard, serpent, boar, didn't have that one, water, and tree. And as you intelligently ask, how do you grasp these things? How do you grasp an entire tree? How do you grasp water? How do you grasp a boar, a serpent, a lion, or a leopard? These are all things that you might not want to put your hands on as well. A lion, a leopard, a serpent, a boar, dangerous, as if the truth is dangerous. Water can flood, can of course drown you. Tree, well, depending on what you're hanging off of, if it's a branch, you might fall and die. Very interesting things here. And we'll have to consider these ideas. Uh, since this lecture isn't particularly long, we're not going to spend much more time on this. But if you want to read into this, that would be a good essay topic. That would be a good seminar topic. What is the purpose of the six things that Proteus turns into? Or what is the meaning behind it? There we go. Well, Menelaus catches Proteus, and the first thing he says, which is a frequent thing that the gods who know the truth say to men, is, Better that you not even have asked, Menelaus, for the truths that I will tell you will bring you no pleasure. If you want to go home, first you have to go backwards, back to Egypt. And in Egypt, 
you will have to acquire enough wealth to sacrifice multiple hecatombs. A hecatomb is a sacrifice of 100 cattle. It takes tremendous wealth. It will take Menelaus tons of time to do this. Where is it that he's trying to get to? Home. Where does he not get to go to even if he does the right thing immediately? Home. He's got to work. And well, then he gets some worse information. Not only is it going to take him forever to get home, he then asks about the fate of his friends, and Proteus is like, oh, oh that's not going to bring you any happiness either, because, well, I asked the lesser. He lost his life due to defying Athena and the gods. We all recall this, right? I asked the lesser attempted to abduct Cassandra during the sacking of Troy. Hurt an image of Athena. Athena became angry at the Achaeans, sent a storm, destroyed Aias's ship and those ships around him. And yet Poseidon saved Aias's life. And yet, foolish as, as lucky as Aias was for that to happen, what does he do the moment that he is safe on a rock? Yells out to the heavens, none can kill Aias the lesser, not even the gods. And so Poseidon takes his trident, knocks that rock, uh, destroys that rock, and sends Aias the Lesser with that rock on top of him down to the bottom of the ocean. Davy Jones is locked. Sorry, Aias the Lesser. Sorry, Menelaus. Bad information. Here's something even worse. Your brother. You love your brother. You love your brother whom the last time you ever saw him you had a major argument with. Well, he made it home. And this guy, Aegisthus, who you know well because you were raised with him, son of Thiestes, killed your brother. Killed him with his wife, Clytemestra's help. His wife, who is the sister of your wife, Helen. And your friend Odysseus is trapped on an island away. You can only imagine how Menelaus feels here. He catches this god. He thinks this god is going to tell him the truth, which is going to be good things that he wants to hear. Like, you get to go home fast. Here's a good shortcut. Opposite. You get to go home slow. Here's a long, painstaking way to do it. Oh, and your friends? Terrible things have happened to many of them. And so you might say that you should be careful what you wish for. Because if you want the truth, you might get it. And it might not be what you want. It might not be very pleasant to hear, even if you do want to know it. In any case, Menelaus, here's one last strange thing, which perhaps is comforting and perhaps is not. Of all characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey, in the Odyssey, we only have one mention of there being a positive afterlife that somebody will go to. And of all characters, all heroes we know, it's not Achilles, it's not, it's not Odysseus. It's Menelaus who will go there. It's a, the idea that we hear from Proteus is that Menelaus will not die, but will be taken to a place called the Elysian Fields. Fields of happiness, of gladness, like the Garden of Eden. Often, like kindergarten, the idea of a field where people play and are happy is often the idea of a pleasant afterlife, uh, no matter what culture. In fact, the word paradise comes from the word paradiso, which I believe is a Persian word, which, or, excuse me, is it Persian? It is an Eastern language. I think it is Persian or Farsi, and it, it means well-watered space, because, of course, they're in the Middle East. What's in the Middle East? Lots of deserts. And so what would be your idea of heaven if you lived in a desert? A what? Watering area. 
a watery area, an oasis. That's right, an oasis. Very good. And so, Menelaus will be taken to this place called the Elysian Fields. The reason why that the book gives is because he is the husband of Helen, who is the daughter of Zeus. The reason I think he really gets to go is because his life is so terrible and full of suffering. In fact, how many of you have read The Lord of the Rings? Or seen the movies? Or just seen The Return of the King? Not very many. Not very many. Well, if you ever do read them, there will be a reward for the character who suffers the most at the end, is that he gets to go across the sea to an Elysian Field-style place. It's almost like the gift of a terrible, suffering-filled life is immortal prestige and story. Hmm. Perhaps. Perhaps. A lot to think about that. Menelaus then invites Telemachus to stay for 11 days or to travel to Argos with him. This, I think, is a very telling part of the story. We know that Menelaus is sad. In fact, he has explicitly told us that he would give up two-thirds of his wealth to have his dead friends back. Sure. Menelaus also says that so much does he love Odysseus that he would like to build a house for Odysseus right next to his and be neighbors. Menelaus then suggests that Telemachus stay with him. And this is a very interesting suggestion because what is it that Menelaus knows that Telemachus has to do? Because he knows the situation that Telemachus has just left. Telemachus has to return home. That's correct, right? Because the whole reason Telemachus left home is to get information about Odysseus so that he can get Odysseus, so that he can bring Odysseus back to home so that he can get rid of the suitors. If Telemachus just goes to travel Argos, which means see the world with Menelaus, what will he be giving up? What will he be abandoning? His family, his responsibilities. <clears throat> so, even though Menelaus gives Telemachus the opportunity of a lifetime, travel with the richest king in all of the ancient world, across the ancient world to learn all of it, what is it that finds Telemachus that keeps him from accepting this ultimate gift? His responsibility. In fact, you will see the exact same theme played out with Odysseus even though we will meet him in book five on a desert island with a beautiful goddess who wants to marry him and make him immortal and keep him ever from working again, do you know what it will be that will keep him from staying there? Does he say that he like, wants to struggle? He wants to struggle. It will be he wants to honor his responsibilities. He wants to return home. He wants to be king. Hmm. Almost as if the only thing more valuable to a human than a perfect heavenly life is a difficult life full of suffering where one upholds responsibility. You might say, that sounds insane, Mr. Schmidt. And I would say, you know, it does sound insane, but I'll just give you two literary analogs to this. First, there was a great writer named Leo Tolstoy who said that even were you to give man everything and have him be able to eat cakes and uh, busy himself with the uh, generation of the next uh, gener <laughs> with the propagation of the species, man would disobey whatever rules in such a perfect place were just to make something new happen. 
And if you've ever seen, have any of you ever seen that contemporary movie, The Matrix, or the second movie, The Matrix? Well, the idea is that humans were first given a heaven world, but that their minds rejected it because there was no struggle. And so I just think that it's very interesting that you see in the Odyssey, you see in this 19th century Russian thinker this idea, you see in the, 20th, the end of the 20th century in America this idea that what is it that humans want more than ease and luxury and a perfect life? They want to struggle and to suffer for that which they care about. And I think that's very fascinating. Because if that's true, that might reshape my idea, my idea about what an ideal world is. Not a perfect safe place, like a, a giant playpen for children, but a place where I could have the ultimate adventure, regardless of the cost. Huh. All right, last thing. Back to Ithaca. We know at Ithaca we have two contingents, two camps there. We have the suitors down there. We have Penelope and her camp down there. The suitors are up to no good. Noemon tells Antinous and Eurymachus about Telemachus leaving. This is shocking to them, because what is it that they thought would never, ever happen, of course? They thought Telemachus would never grow up, never take responsibility, never leave. He left. If he had not left, he would definitely still be a what in their eyes? A boy. A boy is not a threat. A boy does nothing. Sits around, lump style. Maybe listens to some things. But now that he's taken initiative, he seems far more like a what? A man. He's gotten something done. He's accrued a, He's gotten a crew. He's gotten a ship. He's taken these people with him across the sea. He's accomplished things. If he's accomplished all this, what else might he accomplish if he, say, raised an army with Menelaus? He might come back and kill the suitors. And so what do the suitors prepare to do to keep Telemachus from doing that himself? Yes? They set an ambush. They set an ambush. That's exactly right. They decide that Telemachus is no longer a boy. He's a man, and therefore he is a threat. And so they set a trap between Samos and Ithaca. And so when Telemachus decides to come back, he will have to be very, very careful. Ten cuidado, we would tell him. Because, well, the suitors are waiting to kill him. All that said, the herald Medon, keep this in mind, hears about the subterfuge of the suitors and goes to tell Penelope. Penelope then confronts Eurycleia and says, Did you know that my son was gone? Why did you not tell me? Eurycleia says, and she bursts into tears, of course. He says, the reason is, is because he told me, he made me swear not to tell you unless you directly asked me. So now that you're directly asking me, I'm telling you, I'm not betraying you. I am giving, I am honoring his trust in me, which is a very difficult place to be. It'd be like if your mom asked you not to tell something to your dad, and then your dad asked you about what your mom said. It'd be like, uh, what do I do? What do I do? Yes? Do they just let people into the sister's house, or do they keep people out and keep them from leaving? The suitors are all a certain class of individual, and or are you asking whether the suitors keep people from coming to his house? What's the question again? Just one more time. Because you said Medon told Penelope, and Penelope, is she always inside, or does she leave? Penelope is always in the house. That's a good question. And so this is something interesting. Medon can hear what the suitors are saying because they ignore him because he is a servant. However, servants are still what? People. People. People have what? Ears. Ears. Ears are used to do what? 
take in information. And then they use their mouths to tell who they serve what the truth is. And that's a problem for take, with taking things for granted. And so, last thing I'm going to tell you today. Lines 795 to 847 or so. Just because I was telling you earlier that in epics, dreams play a major role. We know in the Iliad, Agamemnon, book 2, was sent a false dream. We recall also book 23, uh, uh, Achilles falling asleep on the beach and having a dream sent to him by Patroclus. In the Odyssey, we'll see Penelope have two dreams. We'll also see a woman named Nausicaa have a dream. We'll see at least see three dreams here. Penelope here dreams, a dream sent by Athena uh, that tells her not to fret about Telemachus, but then when she pushes her luck and says, can you tell me something about Odysseus? The dream says, no. No, I can't tell you anything about Odysseus. In fact, it says, I will not tell you. It, it says, I, it is better not to babble. I will not tell you whether he has lived or died. We'll see later when Odysseus is in Ithaca a dream that she has about the deaths of the suitors. We'll see also a dream by Nausicaa, sent again by Athena, that uh, suggests that a marriageable or an eligible bachelor may soon be in her future. Unfortunately, that will be sort of a false dream because the eligible bachelor will be Odysseus, and Odysseus is, of course, not a bachelor because he's what? He's married, even though he will not always act like that during the Odyssey. All right. But also recall that when we read Dante, Dante will have three dreams in the Purgatorio, and we will see multiple dreams in Paradise Lost to next year. Uh, particularly, we will see one uh, where the uh, Satan in the form of a toad uh, is whispering sweet nothings into the ear of uh, Eve. It's just going to be telling her that there's some fruit from a tree that is just irresistible. Hmm. Seem to be some notions of carnal knowledge in there. But... Okay, the dream refuses to give any information about Odysseus, and that is how the book ends. That is how the introduction in the first part of the Odyssey ends. Book five, the lecture tomorrow, starting tomorrow, we're back with Odysseus. We're back with the titular character, the character for, for whom this work is named. Welcome to the Odyssey.